You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. So last week in my niece, Sierra, who lives in Denver, she was in town visiting with her boyfriend, Sam. Uh, They were here for a graduation ceremony at Cornell. Anyway, a number of family members got together for dinner at a nearby restaurant, and that included a celebration of her 24th birthday. At one point, I got into a conversation with one of my sisters-in-laws and her boyfriend about DNA testing. I mentioned that a few years ago, my wife and I submitted our samples to Ancestry for DNA testing, and thus far, there haven't been any significant revelations. As far as I know, there are no notorious criminals lurking in our family lineage. However, there are numerous DNA matches, some only a couple of generations removed, and they puzzle me as to how they fit into our family tree. Although I'm already aware of a half-sister that I've never met, I wouldn't be surprised if more family secrets come to light as more and more people undergo these tests. You know, perhaps there's another half-sibling out there, or a distant cousin who remains unknown, or even the unlikely scenario of a notorious murderer somewhere in my family history. Of course, I sincerely hope that last possibility never turns out to be true, but nevertheless, I'm fairly certain that there are some undisclosed family secrets yet to be uncovered. And while I have absolutely no doubt that my parents are, in fact, my biological parents, there's always been a family joke suggesting that my brother, who is the sole individual in our immediate family with blonde hair, that he may have had a different biological father. It's been humorously suggested that his real father must have been, get this, the milkman. And although this notion is highly improbable, it could have been a plot line, you know, for the late Jerry Springer's talk show. In this hypothetical scenario, my mom and dad would be brought on stage, my mom would express doubts about my dad being my brother's biological father, and then a third man, you know, dressed in the classic milkman's white uniform, he would dramatically emerge as a possible contender. The suspense, it would build until, until a commercial break interrupted the revelation. Of course, after the break, the show would return and the DNA results would be unveiled, confirming that the milkman was indeed my brother's biological father. Chaos would ensue, a big fistfight would erupt, and the audience would enthusiastically egg them on. However, I have to say, it's safe to assume that such an extravagant scenario was never going to occur. I am completely certain that my brother and I share the same exact bloodline. And honestly, even if that weren't the case, it would make no difference to me. He'd still be my brother and my best friend. 
However, it is worth noting that 100 years ago, you know, DNA testing and airing a family's dirty laundry on the Jerry Springer show, those simply weren't options in determining parentage. As an example, today I have a story to share with you about a couple who found themselves in a similar predicament. The husband, who was a member of a prominent Detroit family, he began to suspect that he might not be the biological father of their child. Moreover, he had reasons to believe that his wife might not even be the biological mother either. Of course, caught in the middle of this turmoil was their son who faced the possibility of being disinherited from the family fortune if these suspicions turned out to be true. So just how would it all play out? Well, coming up next, I have a story that I've titled, and this is to paraphrase Michael Jackson, The Kid Is Not My Son. I am Steve Silverman, and this is the Useless Information Podcast. Useless Information So let's hop in our time machine and roll the clock back to 1875. And we'll find a young man named William Burroughs taking a job as a bank clerk in Auburn, New York. And much of his tedious work involved painstakingly checking the bank's ledgers for errors. His only tools were pencils, paper, and his brain. He realized that what the world needed was a mechanical adding machine. And he was determined to figure out how to design it himself. And after spending five years at the bank, Burroughs decided to pick up and move to St. Louis, Missouri. There, he found employment as a mechanic at the J. Boyer Machine Shop, which just happened to be owned by a man named Joseph Boyer, and he will play a big part in the story later on. Anyway, this new job provided Burroughs with the opportunity to turn his dream of an adding machine into a reality. And it didn't happen overnight, but in 1885, Burroughs filed his first patent application for what he called a calculating machine, and he went on to establish the American Arithmometer Company in 1886. Now, these early machines, they really weren't very accurate, but, you know, with persistent trial and error, Burroughs was able to create a nearly flawless machine within a couple of years. Now, Burroughs designed the machines, but they really were manufactured by the Boyer Machine Shop, and the initial model, it was sold for $475. Doesn't sound like much, but if you adjust that for inflation, that's nearly $16,000 today. As primitive as these mechanical adding machines may seem today, these really were, in some ways, the supercomputers of their day. Tragically, Burroughs passed away at the young age of 41 in 1898, reportedly having earned very little money from his invention. Well, in 1902, Joseph Boyer, who was the owner of the machine shop that produced the adding machines, he assumed the role of the company president, and he renamed it the Burroughs Adding Machine Company. Then, three years later, he relocated the entire company to Detroit, Michigan. And the company had experienced tremendous growth. They sold an estimated 800,000 machines by 1920 and employed 12,000 people worldwide. As you could guess, Joseph Boyer became a remarkably wealthy individual. And keep in mind, there was no federal income tax at the time. However, everything would change for the ultra-wealthy with the enactment of the Revenue Act of 1913, which reestablished a federal income tax. 
This meant that high earners like Joseph Boyer would be obligated to pay a substantial portion of their income to the federal government. It can be inferred, although not conclusively proven, that it was no mere coincidence when Boyer established well-funded trust funds for each of his seven children that same exact year. That strategic move potentially allowed him to evade a significant portion of his tax burden. And it would be a fight over one of these trust funds, it just happened to belong to Joseph's son, Myron Libby Boyer, it would be the fight over that trust fund that would capture headlines both in Canada and the United States throughout the year 1928. Values of the trusts were estimated to be somewhere between $2.5 and $5 million, adjusted for inflation at somewhere between $35 and $88 million today. Not exactly chump change. On July 26 of 1921, Myron entered into matrimony with Laura Lucille Miller, who just happened to be a former sales lady at the Burroughs Company. Wonder how they met, hmm. Anyway, both had been previously married, so, you know, they were well aware of what they were getting themselves into. Yet the marriage got off to a rocky start. And that's because the one thing that Myron wanted more than anything it was to have an heir, you know, someone to pass his fortune on to. But since both of them were 40 years old at the time of their union, it was proving difficult to conceive. It wouldn't be until the middle of 1923 that Laura revealed to Myron that she was finally pregnant. While the details of what happened next were never described in the press, it's safe to assume that Mrs. Boyer's belly expanded as the baby grew inside her. No surprises there, huh? In early November, again this is 1923, as Laura approached the momentous day, for some reason she sent her husband off on an important errand, and it kept him away for several hours. Then, upon Myron's return home, he was taken aback to discover a doctor and a nurse caring for his wife and their newborn baby. He had missed the big moment. Anyway, they named the little boy Joseph Andrew Boyer III. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Everything was going smoothly until around 13 months after the baby's birth. For some unknown reason, and Mrs. Boyer blamed it on the nurse that attended to the baby, Myron began to suspect that the kid was not his son. Could Laura have been two-timing on Myron? Inquiring minds want to know. Anyway, driven by the need for answers, Myron took the decisive step of engaging private investigators to uncover the truth. Through thorough detective work, it was revealed that not only was Myron not Joseph's biological father, but Laura was not his biological mother either. Huh? What? I mean, she had clearly given birth to that baby. Just how could this be? Well, faced with the results of the investigation, Laura was forced into admitting that the whole thing was a hoax. Yeah, the baby was real, 
but neither of the Boyers were his parents. Instead, the baby was born out of wedlock to a 19-year-old Windsor, Ontario woman. Now, before I explain how this all went down, I just want to do a quick side note here and tell you that in one of those quirks of cartography, Windsor, Ontario, which is in Canada, it lies directly south of Detroit, which of course is the United States. Detroit lies on the north bank of the Detroit River, while Windsor, Ontario is on the southern bank. Mrs. Boyer had orchestrated an intricate plan, and it involved the payment of $1,500 to a Detroit doctor. That's about $26,000 today. He arranged for everything. That included locating the expectant young woman in Windsor, the adoption of the newborn, bringing the baby across the border into the United States, and of course, orchestrating a ruse wherein, in her husband's absence, she could pretend that she had just given birth to the baby boy. Yeah, you heard it right. She had faked the entire pregnancy. You know, it's difficult to say how most husbands in the 1920s would have reacted to this. Perhaps they would have divorced their wives or, you know, maybe chosen to accept the child as their own and never, ever reveal a secret to the world. But this case was very different. And that's because the Boyers were a socially prominent family. And Joseph III, who is now four years old, he stood to inherit a vast fortune that he truly wasn't entitled to. From the Boyer family's point of view, this needed to be avoided at all costs. As a result, lawyers from Myron Boyer filed suit in Detroit on March 1st, 1928 to have the child's birth certificate stricken from the state's records. If you think about it, this solution seems very straightforward. You know, if there existed no official record identifying Myron as the boy's father, the child would forever be unable to make any claim to the family's substantial wealth. Now, I'm going to throw in a second side note here, and uh, that's because initial reporting on the story suggested that a separate trust fund had been set up solely in the boy's name, but later on it was revealed that he was simply the sole heir to his father's trust fund. Needless to say, efforts were made to keep this story out of the news, but that didn't work. Somehow, the Associated Press got wind of it, and soon the story spread like wildfire. Mrs. Boyer told a reporter, quote, Everything Mr. Boyer charges in his suit is true. I did adopt a baby a few hours old and told Mr. Boyer it was our child. It was a desperate measure to save our home. I thought an heir, a child's love, would make Mr. Boyer happy and contented. It did for 13 months. Then not even the baby could hold him. It should come as no surprise that at the time this lawsuit was filed, the couple had been separated for about two years. While Myron wanted nothing to do with the boy, Laura found comfort in the fact that she had legally adopted him. Mrs. Boyer continued, quote, I have lost the home but won a child, and the deceit has been worth a thousand times what it cost. I love this boy more than anything else in the world. Now, before I go on with the story, I just want to apologize to all French speakers out there, including my wife. She tried to teach me last night how to pronounce this, and it just doesn't work. So I'm going to give it my best go. Anyway, here we go. Adding to the complexity of the situation, a visit to Hotel Dieu Hospital in Windsor, where the birth occurred on November 5th of 1923, that brought forth more complications. 
You see, the biological mother of the baby, she firmly believes she'd given birth to a girl, yet the hospital records listed the sex as male. And when the birth certificate was filed, it listed the baby's sex as female. So was this simply an error in bookkeeping, or did Mrs. Boyer take the wrong baby home? It certainly wouldn't be the first time there was a mix-up at the maternity ward. Of course, this is long before DNA testing, and since all those who are directly involved are now deceased, my hunches will never know if they had the wrong baby or not. Well, it wasn't long before reporters located the real mother. And at first, they did keep her name out of the papers, but eventually it was revealed that she was Edith Howarth, who is now 23 years old, and lived with her parents at 604 Bruce Avenue in Windsor. Edith knew who the father was, but made it clear that she was never going to reveal his identity because he was unaware that she had gotten pregnant. Quote, I know he's a college boy and apparently of good family. I don't know how much money his family had or anything about them. I made no appeal to him or them for assistance. Newspaper reports claim that Edith had sold a child, but she insisted that wasn't true. Quote, I want to make it clear that I did not sell the child. It has been repeatedly stated in the newspapers that Mrs. Boyer, when seeking the child for adoption, came over here and bought mine. That is not true. When I went to Hotel Dieu Hospital to have the child, I told the hospital authorities on entry that I could not care for it and I wanted it to be adopted by someone who could. It was four or five days before the child was born and taken away. I had not seen Mrs. Boyer or anyone representing her. I had the child registered for adoption before his birth, just so he could be sure of a good home. That was all I was interested in. As for the birth itself, quote, There was a woman there, but I didn't pay any attention to her. I was crying. There was a man. I thought he was a lawyer. He asked me to sign these papers, and I signed them, knowing them to be for adoption. He asked me if any provision was made for my care after I got better, and I said my parents would look after me. There was no mention of money between us, but after he had gone, I found a $20 bill on the bed cover. That's around $350 today, and she did add that whoever took the baby, they also covered the cost of her entire hospital bill. Needless to say, things were getting messier with each passing day, so let me just do a quick summary of where we are. Myron Boyer determines that his son isn't his own, and you have Mrs. Boyer suspecting that she may not have legally adopted her son. And no one's sure if the newborn was a boy or a girl, and the doctor, the one who handled everything, he's deceased. There may have been fraud committed when the birth certificate for the child was registered in Detroit. I mean, could it get any more complicated? You bet it could, and it did. It was learned that Mrs. Boyer had been paying large sums of money over an extended period of time to a blackmailer who threatened to reveal her child's true identity to her husband. Then, immigration officials on both sides of the border, they were investigating whether the boy was in the United States legally. Newspaper articles reported that if the boy was determined to be an illegal alien, he would be deported and forbidden from returning to the United States for one whole year. Mrs. Boyer told the press, quote, 
Nobody can take the baby from me because where he goes, I will go too. If the United States sends him back to Canada because he came into this country illegally, I shall go with him. There will be no separation for us. Overall, the Canadian authorities appeared relatively unconcerned about this predicament. Firstly, it was a false notion that the boy would face a year-long ban from returning to the United States. Such a prohibition would only apply if he had committed a crime, which certainly wasn't the case for a four-year-old boy. Moreover, even if he was to be deported, Mrs. Boyer could easily bring him back to Canada, present the required documentation, and then obtain the necessary papers for legal re-entry. The issue, however, lay in the fact that she was unable to locate those crucial documents. The United States, on the other hand, uh, requested that Laura Boyer appear before a special board of inquiry at the Federal Immigration Commission in Detroit on Monday, March 5th of 1928. They would determine if the boy had entered the United States illegally, and if so, whether or not he should be deported. Meanwhile, Mrs. Boyer was across the Detroit River in Windsor searching frantically for any record that would prove that she had legally adopted her son, Joseph. Unfortunately, no documents were ever located, implying that the adoption had probably never taken place. On top of that, Talbot Clay, he's the Windsor lawyer who drew up the adoption papers, and it's the same papers that Edith Howarth clearly remembered signing while she was in the hospital. He had also died. Can you believe that? But all was not lost. Mrs. Boyer sent one of her attorneys to represent her at the immigration hearing in Detroit, and he indicated that a legal adoption would take place within the next day or two. And that's exactly what happened. Edith once again signed the release papers, and the adoption was now legal. But Mrs. Boyer did make one big change. She changed her son's first name from Joseph to Dode, D-O-D-E. After this immigration official straightened out all the paperwork, and Dode Alfred Boyer was finally allowed to legally stay in the United States. Things really seemed to be looking up, but there was still the issue of Myron Boyer's lawsuit seeking to have his former son's birth certificate, you know, removed from the records. As I mentioned earlier, that was intended to keep Dode from ever claiming any portion of the Boyer family's fortune. So to guarantee this outcome, a second lawsuit was promptly filed a mere six days after the first one. It requested that the court legally sever the child's access to any benefits from the trust fund, leaving no room for potential claims. This was followed by a request made to the court on April 5th of 1928 by Mrs. Boyer, and what she wanted was to dismiss the lawsuits that had been initiated by her husband. There was speculation in the press that what she was about to do was to start fighting for a portion of her husband's trust fund. The next legal punch came one month later on May 5th of 1928. That's when Mr. Boyer filed suit to discontinue the payments that his trust fund had been making to Dode, and they were a whopping $500 per month. If that doesn't sound like it's whopping, adjusted for inflation, that's $8,800 per month. Amazingly, through all of these lawsuits and the constant press attention, the Boyers remained civil throughout the entire ordeal. 
There was no name-calling, no nasty accusations, nor was there any consideration by the couple of divorcing. Well, fast forward to early November. This is about eight months after the initial suit was filed, and it was learned that the court wouldn't look at these cases for possibly another two years. So Mr. Boyer's attorneys requested that the court hear the cases sooner, arguing that Myron Boyer, who I should point out was only 48 years old at the time, that he could suddenly drop dead and the child would inherit a fortune that he was never entitled to. This seemed to work and a hearing was held in Wayne County Circuit Court on November 22nd of 1928. And once again, that death claim would be repeated, although this time it was about the elder Joseph Boyer who was reported to be in poor health. Trustee James Watkins stated, quote, We do know he may or may not be with us in a few months from now. Therefore, we desire this matter settled once and for all. You know, it's almost like these people were placing a curse on both Joseph and Myron Boyer. A decision it was needed now because they could both drop dead tomorrow. Well, Judge Arthur Webster wasted no time in handing down his decision. Dude Alfred Boyer was legally disinherited from the Boyer estate. Not only would all payments from the trust fund stop immediately, but his faked birth records were ordered expunged from all governmental records. Mrs. Boyer was not surprised by the ruling, quote, I am perfectly satisfied. I have my boy and he will be taken care of. That is all. About one week later, Myron Boyer, who had been silent to the press throughout the entire ordeal, he offered up his, quote, first and last statement. It is quite lengthy, so I'll just share some portions of what he said. He begins, quote, During the last nine months, considerable newspaper space has been devoted to the so-called Boyer baby case. I, Myron L. Boyer, being one of the principals of the case, it may be recalled, have never made a statement to the press and never discussed the case with anyone outside of any immediate friends. I studiously avoided making any public statement, as I considered the case entirely a civil one in a personal matter. This case first came to the attention of the public in March of this year due to the fact that I had filed a suit in Ingham County to have expunged from the state records a certificate of birth registering the name of Joseph Andrew Boyer, who, as a baby several days old, had been surreptitiously brought into my home by a doctor and a nurse during my absence and proffered to me on my return by my wife as my own son. He continues, At this time also, I started suit to restrain the trustees of the fund established for me from dispersing any of the fund to this child as my son. These suits were started after I had conclusive evidence that I've been the victim of a deliberate scheme to thrust upon me a child not my own. And now we'll jump ahead to the seventh paragraph. With reference to her statement that she committed this hoax upon me through her desire to make our home a better one and to bind me more closely to my home, I, knowing fully the context of the trust fund established for me, will never believe that she was prompted by the higher motives that she advanced, but will always believe that she was prompted by a monetary motive, as the trust is so drawn that she could never have enjoyed any huge monetary benefits except in the case that I should die leaving a true and legitimate heir. 
Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I'm sure you've heard that old expression that goes, you know, be careful what you wish for because it might just come true. His counsel asked for a speedy trial because either he or his father could die before a decision was reached. Well, pretty much that's what happened. On December 29, 1928, Myron was traveling in a taxi cab while on his way with a friend to the theater. He suddenly felt a sharp pain in his chest, but he declared that he was well enough to continue, but soon collapsed. Myron was then taken back to his home where sadly he passed on. This is just a few weeks after the judge finalized his decision. His father, Joseph, he would pass on two years later. Myron's will dated April 26 of 1923 was handwritten on a single piece of paper. It read, quote, I, Myron L. Boyer, being in good health and of sound mind, do hereby will, deed, and bequeath at my death to my beloved wife, Laura Miller Boyer, all of my earthly possessions without reservation of any nature whatsoever. It never was revealed how much his estate was worth, but when Mrs. Boyer was questioned by a reporter as to its value, she replied, quote, Well, not quite a million. Let the court battles begin. The newspapers would be mostly silent on the fight that was taking place between Laura Boyer and her late husband's siblings. It would drag out for many years, but let me give you a quick summary. There really wasn't any argument over Myron's personal assets, but the debate was over income from the trust fund, which was valued at $2.5 million. Mrs. Boyer's lawyers insisted it belonged to Myron, while the attorneys for the trust fund argued that after Myron's death, any earnings were the property of his father's estate. It wouldn't be until July 9th of 1937, and Dode was now 13 years old at this time, the Boyer heirs were ordered to pay Laura $1.2 million in cash and securities. This was then appealed to the Michigan Supreme Court, where the decision was reversed, and that meant she wouldn't get a single dime. An appeal was made to the United States Supreme Court, but they refused to hear the case. The 1940 census shows that Laura Boyer and her son Dode were living in a small house that she owned at 15760 Southfield Road in Detroit. It shows that she was working as a sales lady in construction, but sadly she died on December 21st of 1940 at the age of 59. This is not long after her census data had been collected. 
As for Dode, I was able to find one picture of him at age 22, and I'll post it on my website. By 1950, he had relocated to Los Angeles and passed away on September 15th of 1995 in Long Beach. He was 71 years old. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. I hope you enjoyed listening to this story. One of the suggestions that was made in the recent user survey was for me to announce what the next podcast will be about. But this episode is really the perfect example as to why I don't do that. You see, I've been researching another story and plan to use that for this episode. But a day or two after I finished recording my last episode, I gathered up all my materials that I planned to use, and I took a long bike ride to get some exercise. So here I am, I'm sitting at a picnic bench in a local park, and I'm reading through everything and taking notes as I normally do. But then, in one of the old newspaper articles, there was just one sentence, it was a mention of the Boyer hoax. It just you know, caught my attention, so I wrote it on a piece of scrap paper, and I did a quick search for it when I got back home. I have to tell you, this is a much better story, so I abandoned the one I was originally working on, and honestly, this happens quite a bit for various reasons. It could be that something better pops up, there are roadblocks in my research, sometimes I start researching and it goes nowhere and I can't figure something out, or sometimes a good story just turns out to be a total bore. And that's the real reason why I don't mention what's coming up next, because it rarely ever works out as planned. Anyway, if you've enjoyed this episode or the podcast in general, I'd appreciate it if you could share it with someone. You know, that can be through Reddit, Facebook, Twitter, or by whatever means you think will help grow my audience. Anything you can do to help spread the word is greatly appreciated. Be sure of that. Just a reminder that you can find the Useless Information Podcast wherever you get your podcasts, so make sure you subscribe. The Useless Information Podcast is now part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, so be sure to visit airwavemedia.com, and there you'll find a curated selection of some of the best podcasts, not just in history, but also science, wellness, education, and the arts. In fact, they just added podcasts aimed at children. Anyway, thanks for listening, and take care, everyone. Bye.